107 and then 108 uh, weeks in Romans and then, Lord willing, start the Gospel of John. Romans 16, 17 to 20 is our text and there's an outline in your bulletin. Uh, there are full printed uh, messages at both exits you can pick up and those are online and uh, the audio will be posted online shortly as well. And so you can take advantage of those. I uh, did verses 21 to 23 last week, and so this week 17 to 20, and then next week we'll finish up with 25 to 27. Um, if I can figure out how to preach it, it's not an easy, easy text. I've already begun some work on it, but uh, that's where we're going. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but... I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Years ago, a seminary professor told his class at the beginning of the semester that they would work together on one major project that semester. They would move systematically through the New Testament and categorize the areas of truth and try to determine how many times uh, each area was addressed. And their goal was to find out which one truth is emphasized in the New Testament more than any other. When they completed the project... They were somewhat amazed. I could ask you any guesses if you haven't already read the uh, introduction there in the notes. But uh, what they found was surprising to them, and that is that warnings against false doctrine uh, were emphasized more than any other thing, more than love, more than unity, or more than experience. Now, I've not gone through myself and done the work to verify their conclusions, but I don't have any reason to doubt it. Jesus, you'll remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, warned in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And much of his ministry, if you've read the Gospels, you know, was spent in combating the false teaching of the religious leaders of that day. Um, In his uh, final long discourse there on things to come in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus said this, verses 4 and 5, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You take the apostles. The apostle Peter devoted uh, most of Second Peter to warning against false teachers. Jude does the same. His entire short letter there uh, is devoted to that theme. 
John, in his epistles, uh, warns repeatedly about false teachers that were coming in among the flock. And if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that part of the work of the Antichrist in the end time is going to be to deceive masses of people through the false prophet. Um, The Apostle Paul as well, his final words to the Ephesian elders, he warned them, This is Acts 20, verses 28 to 30. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this is the scary part. And from among your own selves... Men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul's final three letters are 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, in that order. They're called the pastoral epistles, written to two young pastors that Paul was handing the baton to. And if you read those letters just straight through and have your antenna up, you will see the emphasis on sound doctrine. It's over and over and over. Um, he told Titus in Titus 1.9 that an elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accord, accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. By the way, the word sound is the Greek word that we get our word hygienic from, and it means Healthy doctrine, doctrine that produces spiritual strength and health. Uh, He goes on to explain in that Titus 1 chapter that there are many empty talkers and deceivers who are upsetting whole households through their false teaching. Then you come to the last chapter that Paul wrote before his death, 2 Timothy 4. And in that chapter, he uh, exhorts Timothy as strongly as he could, invoking every power in the heavens, to say, preach the Word. And then he goes on and explains why, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Interesting use of words. You have to endure sound doctrine. It may not be the easiest thing to uh, sit under, but you must endure it. He goes on, Um, But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And so it should be of no surprise to us when we come to the end of this great letter uh, to the Romans that in the midst of giving and sending greetings to his dear friends in Rome, uh, Paul breaks in with this warning to beware of false teachers. Now, there are some liberal, and I even read of one who purports to be a conservative commentator, who argue that verses 17 to 20 must have been added by a later uh, redactor, a, a later editor of the letter to the Romans, because it is so abrupt and seemingly out of context. I mean, here's Paul, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, And then in verse 21, Timothy greets you, and -and so-and-so greets you, and all of that. But in the middle of that, bam, you've got this final warning against false teachers. But it seems to me to be very 
explainable right where it's at because Paul was constantly battling false teachers who dogged his steps, went behind him in every church he planted, and brought in uh, their false uh, truth, or false, I mean, error that perverted the truth of the gospel. And Paul was writing Romans from Corinth. If you've read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he is there writing to the Corinthians, warning about these false apostles who he says they pose as servants of righteousness. So they aren't coming in with evil written all over their faces and a hideous grin and a wicked laugh, you know, I'm going to get you. No, they come in posing as servants of righteousness, but he says they're like Satan, an angel of light, uh, posing as an angel of light. And uh, so Paul had heard that the Romans were doing well, as he says in verse 19, but the fact is, the present is no guarantee of the future. You know, when you get a mutual fund prospectus, it always warns you, past performance is no guarantee of the future. Well, the Romans were doing well, but Paul, says, man, as he's writing these greetings, and he's seeing all these faces come up before him, he thinks, oh, I don't want them to be seduced by false teachers. And so he breaks in with this uh, warning against that danger. Now, let me... Before we look at this, just say this. What I'm going to say, because I'm basing on what Paul says, is totally out of sync with our culture. And uh, if you react against this message, chances are you've been seduced by the culture. I'm going to say that up front. If you say, well, well, Steve isn't very loving, right, 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 right. You've been seduced. You're already in trouble, Okay. Because this is countercultural to America. Our chief virtue in America is tolerance. Oh, we got to, you know, you've seen the coexist. We all got to come together and hug each other and love each other. And I've heard evangelicals say, oh, the Bible doesn't say they'll know we're Christians by our sound doctrine. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And so they urge that we get together on the basis of what we agree on, even with the Roman Catholic Church, and we all come together and hold unity services, even with those who deny the Bible, the key message of the Bible, the gospel, and other key uh, truth in the Bible. The worst in extreme form, some of the churches here in town hold an interfaith service. This isn't among different Christian denominations, It's inviting the Islamists and the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Baha'is and everybody come together and we're going to all have a worship service. That goes on. Now, I'm going to share something else that's going to upset some of you, but I don't say this to trash Billy Graham. Okay, Billy Graham is a great man of God, used of God. And I say this in the sense I would speak of David falling with Bathsheba. You know, when David fell with Bathsheba, that ought to strike fear in your heart. Because if David could fall, guess what? None of us is invulnerable. Well, if Billy Graham can say what I'm going to share with you that he said, then guess what? You and I better take heed to ourselves because we could be seduced. So I share it with you with a heart that is sad for what Billy Graham did and said, and I I wish he hadn't done it, and it grieves me, and I wish 
to God, hope to God that none of us do it. But here's, here's the deal. As far back as 1978, McCall's Magazine quoted Graham as having said, I used to believe that pagans in far countries were lost if they did not have the gospel of Christ preached to them. I no longer believe that. Okay, that means call all our missionaries home. We're wasting money, folks, because those people in far lands don't need the gospel. And then, and I'm quoting this from Ian Murray's book, Evangelicalism Divided, but I went on YouTube this week, and you can do the same and watch this interview I'm going to quote here. Uh, May 1997, uh, Billy Graham was interviewed by Robert Schuler of Crystal Cathedral Infamy. I was going to say fame, but it's infamy. And uh, Schuler, who denies the gospel, um, asked Graham the future of Christianity. And Graham said, I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not. Now, that's the key phrase. How can you know and love Christ if you don't know you know and love Christ? Sometimes I wonder if I know and love Christ, and I do know and love Christ, okay? But whether they know of it or not, are members of the body of Christ. God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for His name, and that's what He's doing today. He's calling people out of the world for His name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world. Okay, so far so good, but here comes the punchline. <clears throat> they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called of God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they don't have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think that they are saved, and they're going to be with us in heaven. It's just an appalling statement. It's just tragic in denying that Jesus is the Savior that must be believed in. And Schuler was surprised. I mean, Schuler is a rank liberal. And he was surprised by Graham's words. And he said, what, what I hear you saying, that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible? Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? And Graham said, yes, it is, very decidedly. At which point, Schuler exclaimed, I'm so thrilled to hear you say this. There's a wideness in God's mercy, to which Graham added, there is, there definitely is. Now, of course, we believe there's a wideness in God's mercy. Uh, we saw that in Romans 10:13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. I mean, how wide can you get? Throw out the gospel, whoever. Buddhist, Hindu, uh, Muslim, pagan, will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's the wideness, but you'll notice they must call on the name of the Lord. And who is that Lord? Jesus Christ is that Lord. And Jesus, as you know, in John 14:6, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so when a Christian leader as respected and as popular as Billy Graham can be led astray like that and say that people of other religions can 
be in heaven without believing in Jesus Christ. I, I bring that up just to say we really need to heed these words here today. Okay? That's why I share it is none of us here is, you know, got the uh, armor on that we can withstand all of this apart from God's grace. So um, what Paul is warning us here is that even obedient Christians need to be on guard against false teachers who deceive others for their own gain. And Paul makes three points. I'm just going to work through the text verse by verse. In verses 17 and 18, his first point is that believers need to be on guard against false teachers. Then secondly, in verse 19, he says even obedient Christians need to be on guard against false teachers. And then thirdly, in verse 20, he shows that ultimately it's the God of peace and His grace that protect us from falling prey to false teachers. So first of all, verses 17 and 18, believers need to be on guard against false teachers. He says, I urge you, and that's that word we saw in Romans 12.1. We saw it again in Romans 15.30. It's a strong appeal. And you notice Paul is talking to believers. I urge you, brethren. He's talking to the church. And he shows us two things. He shows us how to recognize these false teachers. And then he shows us how to respond when we encounter them. First of all, recognizing the false teachers, Paul is saying, to spot one, you've got to know what you're looking for. Because these guys don't wear neon signs saying, I am a false teacher. Uh, they come incognito. Uh, now, scholars debate who these guys were. Apparently, they have not yet arrived in Rome. Paul's giving them a heads up. These guys are coming your way, soon appearing in your town. They will come. Uh, who were they? Well, scholars debate it. We cannot be certain, but uh, two scholars I highly respect, Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner, um, say they believe it was the Judaizers because the Judaizers went everywhere that Paul went. He would go into a town, preach the gospel of the grace of God. These guys would come into town say, we believe in Jesus too, but Paul forgot to tell you. In order to be saved... Uh, you must also keep the Jewish law. I mean, yeah, believe in Christ, of course. We all believe in Christ. But in addition, you must keep the law of Moses. And uh, so that's, I believe, who's in view here. But the warning is generic enough. It can apply to a wide range of false teachers. Paul gives four marks. First of all, the motivation The motivation of these false teachers is invariably to promote themselves by causing dissensions and stumbling blocks. Verse 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Now, right off, we have to be careful. Paul is not saying that every every dissension is due to false teachers. If so, the Lord Jesus would be a false teacher because he created a lot of dissension, didn't he? I mean, he stuck his thumb in the eye of the Pharisees and and just created a lot of dissension among the Jewish uh, population and Jewish leaders. Paul himself contended vigorously against the Judaizers. He wrote the whole book of Galatians against them. He, in that book, tells how he confronted Peter in the assembly at Antioch, publicly, 
because Peter had been uh, come under the sway of the Judaizers as well as Barnabas. And um, Paul, throughout his letters, contends strongly against error and for the faith. And he even sums up his own ministry at the last there in Second Peter, I mean Second Timothy four, and says, "I have fought the good fight." That, that was my ministry. I fought the good fight. So Paul is not saying that if somebody stirs up dissension, they're a false teacher. But the key is the word dissension here occurs in Galatians 5.20. Galatians 5.20 is the list of the deeds of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, Paul, another key is contrary to the teaching of, which you learn. So the idea is these false teachers come in with false doctrine and their motive is the flesh themselves. They want to be exalted. They want to build a following. And they're promoting themselves and they love to be in the center of attention. Often they're after power or fame or money or improper uh, sex, sex outside of marriage, Uh, They don't seek to exalt Christ and Christ crucified. They don't hold firmly to the gospel of justification by faith alone. Paul says they also cause stumbling blocks, and that's a word that's often used for damnable heresies that are introduced. And so what would happen? These teachers would come in. At first, maybe nobody can tell who they were or what their agenda was. But sooner or later, godly elders would stand up and oppose them. By then, they had already made inroads through the other uh, things we're going to see in a second and gotten a following, and so you got a major church split going on over people following these false teachers. So their motivation is key. They're self-centered. They're in the flesh. Secondly, the message of the false teachers, Paul says, is to contradict biblical truth. Uh, that's contrary to the teaching which you learned. And Paul there mainly means the teaching of the gospel, which is central to everything. Uh, What he set forth here in this whole letter of the Romans. There are many areas of doctrine where godly, Bible-believing Christians may differ. Okay? Uh, Things like baptism, church government, spiritual gifts. There are other secondary issues. And there are godly men in both or even if there's more than two camps. But then there are core doctrines, and if you deny them, you really are denying the essence of the Christian faith. And that's what Paul is talking about. These guys, it wasn't peripheral things. This, this was core truth that they were denying. And all of the cults, I, I can't think of an example of one cult that doesn't do this, they teach salvation by works. Think through the, all the cults you can think of. They all teach salvation by works. Now, that appeals to the flesh. Why? Because I can take credit for my salvation. You know, I'm a good person. I did that. I was out knocking on doors every Saturday, and so I'm going to heaven. See? And it feeds the flesh. And... All false teachers, without exception, undermine the biblical teaching of the person and work of Christ. That he is truly God and truly man. That he died as a substitute for sinners. 
that his death alone is sufficient for salvation when we trust in him, and so on. Now, what I'm saying is this. If you abandon these core doctrines for the sake of unity, you may have unity, but it's not Christian unity. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, is to be willing to die for these core truths. So pay attention to their motivation. Pay attention to their message. Thirdly, the master of false teachers is their own appetites, not the Lord Christ. Paul says in verse 18, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And invariably, false teachers are in it for themselves. What they can get, their own financial gain, uh, power, being in the limelight uh, often, and this has been in the press, so I'm, I'm not saying anything you don't know. They take advantage of women in the congregation who are susceptible to their power and their charisma and uh, are immoral uh, with those women. But the thing is, they are not living in submission to Christ as Lord. And that phrase, our Lord Christ, speaks of the deity of Jesus. He is Lord, God. He is the sovereign. We submit to him. He, he is who he is. So that's at the key. And true teachers seek to submit every area of their lives to Christ as Lord. So their motivation, their message, their master. And then finally, Paul says, look at the method of these false teachers. Their method is to use smooth and flattering speech to deceive the hearts of the naive. Invariably, false teachers are nice, likable, and winsome. They are not mean, you know, unlikable. Who could stand that guy? No, of course not. Satan's too smart for that. These guys are, are they flatter you. They tell you what you want to hear. They smile a lot as they tell you how great you are. Boy, that pumps you up. And you can have your best life now, you know. Wow, that's just what I want. And so they, they package their message to draw you in. And they don't talk about anything negative, you know, like sin. I, I have <clears throat> heard uh, Joel Osteen say just that. He doesn't talk about sin. You know, people get beat down too much during the week, and when they come to church, they need something upbeat. You know, he wants them to leave feeling good. And so, you know, he wants to talk a lot about God's love and acceptance, apart from that nasty repentance stuff, of course, because that implies you've sinned. And it's all, it's all positive. You know, it's all wonderful. It's all you're the greatest kind of thing. Um, these false teachers will use Bible verses. I don't know if you've ever read the heretical book, uh, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation by Schuller. It is purportedly an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It's ridiculous. I mean, he doesn't even come close to telling you what the Lord's Prayer is about. He uses it as a springboard to promote his false gospel of self-esteem. He redefines sin. Sin no longer means sinning against God, breaking his commandments. Sin means being down on yourself. And all the way through the book, he redefines terms. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, do the same thing. I've read in their um, publications, we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay? Get down to defining the terms. They don't believe in the same Jesus Christ we proclaim. They redefine it. He's a different Jesus. 
And uh, that's invariably the case. You ever heard the name Arius? Arius was a heretic, died about 336 A.D. He is really the father of the modern Jehovah's Witnesses. He denied the deity of Christ. Now, they were struggling with the Trinity at that point in church history, trying to understand how that all fit together. Arius' solution was, well, Jesus is the first created being. He gained a huge following. It was really pretty precarious for a while. And God raised up a champion. You can thank a man named uh, Athanasius came along and stood against Arius and fought for the truth. But here's how Parker Williamson describes Arius. He says, here was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow. The kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome. Singing sea chanties. I had to look that word chanties up. It's the songs that sailors sing in a pub, okay? <clears throat> singing sea chanties in dockside pubs and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful. This was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that heresy does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. Notice also in verse 18 that these false teachers with their smooth and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The heart refers to your mind and your emotions. And they get to your mind through your emotions. They tell funny stories. They... Um, tug on your heart, they get you laughing, uh, they often ridicule those who stand for the truth, those guys are mean and angry, don't listen to them, and then they'll tell a joke and draw you in, and when you're laughing, they slip in their false teaching, and they win people over by appealing to the heart. Uh, modern false teachers appeal to greed, if you trust in Jesus and give me your money, you'll be rich. Uh, they appeal to everybody's desire to be healthy. Uh, you believe in Jesus, he'll heal all your diseases. You ever notice how they still die, all, all the false teachers? But, you know, ignore that. And if you'll just send them a gift, they will lay their hand on that gift and pray for you over their TV set, and that power will go out to you and you will be healed. So here's the uh, way you can donate right now, even online, you know. But they're just, they're preying on your feelings. So, false teachers, Paul says, look for their motives, look for their message, uh, look for their master, and look for their methods. Now, what do you do when you meet one? Well, Paul says, when you recognize one, the response to false teachers is, keep your eye on them and turn away from them. He says that in verse 17. Keep your eye on them, and there is a noun related to that verb that's used in Ezekiel 3.17, where God says, Ezekiel, I'm placing you as a watchman on the wall. Now, that was a very uh, relevant image, because in that day, the watchman was on duty on top of the wall, and he was to keep his eye peeled for the enemy. If he saw a cloud of dust out there and he wasn't sure, he would sound the alarm and, and everybody would rally to the, the cause and defend the city because that might be the enemy coming. And so that's the idea here. Keep your eye on these false teachers because they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, Paul said. Jesus used the imagery of a wolf in sheep's clothing. You've got to be a discerning sheep to say, that's not a sheep. You know, look at his feet. 
Those aren't sheep's feet. You know? I mean, that, that's a wolf. And uh, you've got to be discerning to do it. Paul doesn't say, now engage in dialogue with them. Bring them into your church and hear all of their ideas. Maybe there's some common ground that you can agree upon. He doesn't say anything of the kind. And you know, sometimes the godly thing to do is to divide, to separate from these teachers. And Christian leaders have to be careful. I am often under pressure to come to unity services and unity meetings here. And often the Roman Catholics are included. Billy Graham was notorious for having Roman Catholic priests sit on his platform at his crusades. And then do you know what he did? Because I participated in one Billy Graham crusade. And so uh, it wasn't Billy. It was one of his associates. And I was promised they wouldn't do this. And they did it anyway. When a Roman Catholic comes forward and says, I want to believe in Christ... They fill out the comment card and they give it to the local priest. You know, that, that's like feeding the chickens to the wolves. You know, you're, you're, you're just feeding their appetite. They're not going to tell them the truth. And that's what Graham did. Well, that sends a loud and clear message to those who are untaught, to those who are naive, unsuspecting. Well, the Catholics believe the same as we do, don't they? The problem is they don't. And they don't on the key issue. You see, we believe that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Works follow genuine faith. The Catholics believe something totally different. We are justified by grace through faith plus works. And the works are a process by which justification is a process. And if you pile up enough works by the end of your life, maybe... You'll get into heaven, but they're not even sure about the Pope. Because when the last one died, the current one said, let's pray him out of purgatory and get him into heaven. See, that's a totally different way of salvation. It's the Galatian heresy. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Yep, just add circumcision, guys, and you got it. Just keep the Jewish law, man, and you'll be in. And Paul was not nice to those men. Galatians 1, he said, they are damned. I mean, he didn't say, oh, they're brothers, let's get together and see if we can work this out. He drew the line and said, they're damned. So you see how serious this is. And Christian leaders capitulate on this all the time. Now, it raises the question, what should you do Saturday morning? There they are, you know, at your door. Should you invite them in and dialogue with them so that you can uh, maybe win them to Christ? Well, be careful. That's my word. Maybe, but be careful. The cults do a far better job of training their people in their version of evangelism than we do. And if you've ever tangled with those guys, they know their stuff. They'll take you to every single verse to prove that Jesus wasn't God. You better have your guns loaded because they know their stuff. You know what I usually do? Nah, we're on a blacklist because a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Jehovah's Witnesses going down the street. So Marla said, you want to talk to them? I said, well, if they ring the door, I'll go get it. They missed us. <laughs> they skipped us and went on down the street because when they come to my door, I say to them, 
you know, look, I, I'm a pastor and I've studied the Bible in depth for 45 years and uh, I know your arguments and if you're here to convert me, you're wasting my time and your time. But I said, if you're here and you really want to know God and you really want to know your sins are forgiven and go to heaven, then let's talk. Have a nice day, sir. Thank you. And off they trot. See, they don't want to talk about their soul. They want to snag me in. So anyway, be on guard. But Paul goes on, verse 19. I've got to hurry here. And he says, even obedient Christians need to be on guard. Notice verse 19. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Now, why does he begin that verse with four? Because he seems like he's explaining the warning he's just given in verse 18. And then he says, four, you guys are obedient. What's, what's the connection? I think what he's saying is this. Your obedience puts a big target on you. Because cultists invariably do not prey on the lost. They aren't out at Macy's trying to reach the lost there. They're trying to find Christians who are undiscerning, and maybe know a little bit of the truth, but not enough to refute their error, and they pounce on them. And so Paul is saying, just because you're obedient doesn't mean you're home free. That's good that you're obedient, but be careful. And then Paul says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I thought about doing a whole sermon on that verse, because, wow, what a verse. Uh, J.B. Phillips paraphrases, I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Uh, Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 10:16 uh, in the ESV. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, in the context, good refers to sound doctrine, Evil refers to the, the evil teaching of the false teachers. Um, and, uh, not, and being innocent in what is evil, the, the verb means don't be mixed up with them. Now the question is, well, should we study what the cults teach? Uh, you should probably be knowledgeable enough about the doctrine of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they're the main ones coming around, that you can refute them. But I, it's not edifying to just go into great detail and study all the junk they believe. You know, some may be called to that. Okay, if that's your calling to equip the rest of us, that's fine. But I think what Paul is saying here is you're going to be better shape if you know the book, if you know the truth. You know, it's like you've heard that when they teach agents, federal agents, to spot counterfeit money, they don't study counterfeit money. They study real money. Because if you know the real stuff, you'll spot the false. If you know the Word of God, you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This doesn't square with this scripture. So that's what Paul is saying. And then I've got to rush on. I, the whole sermon that you're not going to hear is this. Just a, an aside. Don't think you've got to immerse yourself in the filth of our culture to know the culture. Innocent and evil. You know, reading the movie reviews is about enough for me. I read them and go, oh, gross. This is garbage. Why would anyone want to jump in and go watch that filth over at the theater? And yet many Christians do that. 
like Paul says, ultimately it's the God of peace and his grace that protect us from falling prey to false teachers. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And the God of peace, he says then, is able to crush Satan under our feet as we, of course, trust in him. Interestingly, that's the first mention of Satan in Romans, right here at the end. Um, I think Paul is thinking about the first temptation when the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. And God graciously gave a promise there and said, The head of the woman, I mean, the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. I think that's behind this and even behind the mention of grace in the next phrase. Um, and so the implication is Satan is behind all these false teachers who deceive the unsuspecting just as the serpent deceived Eve. And uh, it's, isn't it interesting? You would think he would say, and the God of might will crush Satan under your feet. You know, or, or the God of warfare will crush Satan under your feet. What does he say? The God of peace. Why does he say that? Because God has made peace between sinners and himself through the blood of Christ. You're reconciled to God. And he's made peace between believers and through the cross of Christ as well. Uh, Satan was defeated at the cross, Colossians 2.15, but not totally. In other words, positionally, he's done. His doom is sealed. But meanwhile, we fight the battle. We put on the spiritual armor. We uh, resist the devil so that he flees from us. And then finally... When Christ comes, he will throw him into the lake of fire, and uh, there he will be forever defeated. So we should not ignore Satan, but at the same time, we shouldn't fear him. We need to respect his power. We need to respect that he is very smart and cunning. But we have the victory. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And then, finally, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus will protect us from the errors of the false teachers. And grace takes us all the way back to the start of the book. And next week we'll see that Paul ends the book as he started it. But in Romans 1.7 he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, grace is really the theme of Romans because the gospel is the theme of Romans and the gospel is all about the grace, the unmerited favor of God. And uh, false teachers invariably subvert the grace of God. They do two things with it. They teach works, which is legalism, or they teach licentiousness. But neither are related to grace. God's grace is what motivates us to get into his word, to study the word of truth, keep us from the false teachers. So be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, as Paul says to Timothy. And... Uh, from his false teachers. Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, is, was a champion for the truth in the Church of England in the 19th century. How many of you have read a book by Ryle? That's not enough. Okay. Read Ryle. Read the man. I mean, he is he's the kind of guy, when you read him, and he's expounding a verse of scripture, I look at the verse and I think, why didn't I see that? You know, he just brings to light stuff in the Bible that you, it's so obvious and yet you missed it. Anyway, in his warning to the churches, he was writing about how difficult and yet 
how necessary controversy in the church is. And uh, he stood against the um, Oxford movement in his day. As you may know, Cardinal Newman left the Anglican church and led all kinds of Anglicans back to Rome. Ryle stood firm against that and said, no, that's error, this is truth. Anyway, then he adds this. He says, but there's one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that's false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest or molestation. And then he goes on and, and explains, yeah, I know a lot of people are going to be upset with me saying this, but then he says this. Three things there are which men never ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Father, I pray that you would burn these words into our hearts and minds. Keep all my brothers and sisters from error. Keep me from error. I am not invincible. And Lord, keep us in your grace and in your peace. And if any are here who don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus, I pray you would open their eyes to see the truth, that he died for sinners, that his invitation is open to all, that they will call upon him, they will be saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to run a minute or two over. But